0: Eric Whitaker, um, it's so wonderful to have you with us here at All Classical Portland to talk about your new recording called Home. Uh, of course, as with so many places, we are no stranger to your music. We've been playing it for years. And at this point, we have accumulated multiple versions of many of your pieces because so many choirs clearly want to record it and play it. And there's a little bit of that kind of crossover with your new recording as you are, of course, well aware. Even the group on home your new recording voches 8 has recorded some of your music before but in this case this is i would imagine a fresh recording of the music the voches 8 has recorded before because they're with you
1: that's it exactly yeah this this was the dream at least for me the dream project for years and years i've wanted to work with voches 8 they're one of my favorite groups in the world And we finally were able to make it happen. And then the pandemic started. So, so we, we put it on hiatus for two years. And then when we got together, you know, they, they generally sing without a conductor, right? They, they just sing. And so with me standing in front of them and conducting my music, for me at least, it was a transcendental experience. Um, I I just, they're so musically intelligent, so emotionally intelligent. Um, I feel like you can hear it on every second of that recording.
0: Already a couple of YouTube videos have been shared of you conducting them with microphones Mm. in front of them. Um, And one of them is for your new piece, All Seems Beautiful to Me. Mm. And I was watching that and noticing that each one of them has their own microphone. And it's not like you have a a standard left-right pair for the whole group and it just captures all their voices. There must be a very good reason for them to be individually mic'd.
1: Yeah, that's right. Well, I have to say this is the brainchild of Barney Smith, who is not only the founder but still the alto. He's one of the altos. And Barney also produced this recording. And his idea is that unlike that that as you say, that classical like traditional way of, of recording, where you've got the, the stereo mics, this way he also records each individual voice so you can get this incredibly intimate sound. And I think it's what makes the Vojus Eight recordings different than most other classical choral recordings is that it's just so close and intimate, especially in headphones. You really you you fall into the world that they're singing cool.
0: they meld and yet they stand apart so distinctly that sometimes I think, am I actually hearing human voices or is this being created by AI or something? <laughs> it's, so, it's so perfect, but it's also, um, it's, it is so so close to, to you when you listen to it.
1: You almost think this can't be real. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I'll tell you the disconcerting thing is that's exactly what it sounds like in real life. So, you know, I'd listened to the recordings for 15 years before I actually met them. And then I, I stood in front of them and I lifted my hands and took that first breath and they start singing back to me and it sounds like the CD recording. They're so blended. So it's, it's almost superhuman what they do, like, like they, they're all thinking with the same mind or breathing with the same soul. It's extraordinary.
0: Now, Eric, uh, Voucho's eight is exactly that eight voices. I noticed that, uh, in the, the lineup, there's, there's five men and three women. But are they arranged
1: um, in
0: voice range from left to right, or anything like that?
1: Yeah, so it starts with the bases. If you're looking at the choir, basses stand on the right, and then they kind of go up from there. And the reason there's five men and three women is that Barney, the alto, so he's singing what is traditionally a, a well. I should say traditionally, altos used to only be men way back in the day, right? So, so it's. The altos then are, are one man, one woman, and it gets that beautiful blended sound between the, the the two different voices.
0: Yeah. Tell me a little bit about "All Seems Beautiful to Me." It's based on a Whitman poem. I looked it up. I noticed that it's you're not taking it right from the very start of the poem because it's very long. It's in right. multiple multiple parts and and so forth. So, what drew you into that part of Whitman's poem?
1: Well, during the pandemic, I was asked to write a piece about community, the idea that eventually we would be out of this. And so, so would I write about community? And, and I went to Uncle Walt, my favorite poet. And as you say, this is from Songs of the Open Road, which is this beautiful sort of um, ecstatic, long, long poem. And I took just number five because I felt that it perfectly encapsulated what I hoped would be the, the way that we could move forward, which is actually extraordinarily timely when you consider that he wrote this back in eighteen sixty. That that it, it's all about inclusion and 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 acceptance. The the final line of of that poem is um whoever denies me it shall not trouble me. Whoever accepts me, he or she shall be blessed and shall bless me. And I thought that's it right there. That's the that's the foundation of a, of a, a working compassionate society. Do you find yourself going to
0: poems when there is an event in your life or, or external, um, factors that, that cause you to have to seek
1: out certain words and certain, certain, um, minds? It's a great question. And yes, yes, yes. And yes. Um, my grandmother first introduced me to poetry when I was a child. She's a, she was a librarian. And so poetry has been in my life forever. What's amazing now is I can look back at 30-plus years of writing and how autobiographical each new poem that I'm selecting is. You know, I can see, oh, that's exactly where I was at that time of my life, and that's who I was, but sometimes only intuitively. You know, I don't know if you've ever had that experience where somebody— Hands you a book or a poem and says, You should read this, and it's the perfect time. It's just when you need it, it's like it found its way to you somehow. And so several of the poems that I've said over the years felt like that, just oh, this is just this revealed itself to me. And then only looking back now can I see that, oh, actually it's because I needed that at that time.
2: I can repeat all-
0: large part of your new recording is uh, it comprises the Sacred Veil, um, which I've been listening to and and reading about. And one of the ways that I've been approaching it is not just the new Voce's 8 recording and liner notes, but also the the world premiere recording that you did with mm-hmm. the Los Angeles Master Chorale. And um, could you, in, in an in a co- encapsulated way, Tell me about uh, Mr. Silvestri, your relationship to him, and how, and the, the origin of the Sacred Veil.
1: Yeah. So, Tony's been my best friend for 31 years since we stood together in college choir. Uh, he was a tenor, I was a bass. And we've written over a dozen pieces together he writing the poetry, me writing the music, Luke Rumque" and Sleep, Leonard Dreams of His Flying Machine. And 16 years ago, he lost his wife, Julie, to ovarian cancer. And it was as devastating as you can imagine. It left behind a seven-year-old and a three-year-old that Tony beautifully raised. And over the years, I've encouraged him to write about it. And one morning, about six years ago, he left on my piano. He was visiting, left sitting on the piano. What is now the poetry for the first movement? And it begins with whenever there is birth or death. And it's this idea that this veil between the world of the living and those who have passed in moments of birth or death is so thin that they're just right there. I found that so beautiful, such a beautiful image. And from that poem, we had a long conversation and decided, okay, let's tell the whole story. Let's tell it as honestly as we possibly can. So from the very first moments that they meet, to falling in love, to trying to conceive, to conceiving, to Julie's diagnosis, to her real struggle and sickness and her death, and a kind of benediction at the end.
0: And you, you wrote some of the text for this as well. And I did. And besides Charles Anthony Silvestri, who I'd imagine is the primary author of the text, maybe I'm wrong, but right. it also credits Julia Lawrence Silvestri, so we have yeah. her words in there as well. Um, Child of Wonder, which concludes it. Now, that's your
1: words, as I understand. That's right. But yeah. but inspired and, by Mr. Silvestri. Yeah, it, immeasurably so inspired that um, as we started to tell the story, I I Tony's the most humble man I know. And I knew he could never see himself as the hero that I saw him as. And so two of the movements that I wrote frame him and telling his story in a way that I knew he couldn't. And especially that final movement, Child of Wonder, where it's it's about acceptance and 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 something that Tony beautifully says, which is that the thing you learn about true grief is that it's never healed. It's just that you learn to move through the world now with grief. That's, that's your new reality. And so what I did then is I tried to weave in all of these different quotes from pieces that we'd written before. So there's there's little nods to Sleep and to Lukes and to Leonardo and, and, and Saint-Chapelle and Noxorumque, and all of these different little quotes in my poetry that are quoting words he wrote over the over the years.
0: So that's how the two of you kind of intertwine on multiple levels. You're, you've intertwined as friends over decades and here you are also <laughs> intertwining uh, through
1: this art, this music. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. It's It's a singular relationship in my life that I have with Tony profoundly close and i think because we've gone so deep so many times with creatively and you've kept in touch oh yeah yeah we're all the time in fact i'll tell you the most amazing story so the two children uh his two children the youngest emma is now 20 she's studying to be a choral director and so she is singing with the um uh oh my gosh she's singing with saint olaf university they just toured here through Pasadena where I live in California and they did the last two movements of the sacred veil and Emma sang can you imagine so she's singing her mother's story and and so so of course you know afterwards we had her over to the house and and just sending Tony pictures of of me and Emma it was uh it's 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 just amazing how how life works out that circular uh phenomenon that takes place
0: Exactly right. The sacred veil. Does it? Would you say that it reveals the personality of Julia,
1: her different
0: aspects of her sides and of her personality?
1: Yeah, I think that's a beautiful way to say it. It tells both of their stories, and for for Julie, we we wanted to try to capture her essence. And I think my favorite of her three writings is the fourth movement. It's called Magnetic Poetry, and they were they were trying to conceive and really struggling took them a couple of years, but every morning they would wake up and write a different poem using those little refrigerator magnets, poems, you know, just move the the words around and then make a poem. And every morning they would just write poetry to each other. And it was, it was nothing. And only when Tony went looking for words of hers that we could use for this piece, did he find that she had on that day written down in her diary, this magnetic poem. And it, It details so exquisitely the struggle that she was having, the ache that she had to to have a baby, the the way she was worried that, that the world would see her for not being able to conceive. It's so honest and human. It's one of the most beautiful poems I know. And to me, that's quintessentially Julie, even though it was just taken from refrigerator magnets.
0: Wonderful. Eric, let's talk for a moment about the same piece, but the fact that, as I, I brought up the CD before, you have already released a world premiere recording of this with one group, Los Angeles Master Crowd. now with Voces 8. It wouldn't be fair for me to put you on the spot and say, which one do you like better? Mm. But there must be aspects or there must there must be um, positives or... or, or elements of each that bring something different to you in, in each case.
1: Yeah, no question. So the, the easiest way I think to describe the difference between them is for me, just the size of the groups. So I, I wrote it for the Los Angeles Master Chorale and I envisioned it. It's a 40 voice professional choir. So big voices, a big sound, cello and piano. And I have to say, if any of them happen to be listening, that I, the piece would not exist were it not for them. They, they helped me to bring it to life. I made thousands of changes during the rehearsal process and after the performances. And and I feel like they were almost co-collaborators with me in this. And that's how I conceived the pieces, that that kind of size of sound. To be honest, when we first started talking about doing it with what, just 8, I didn't know if it would work with only eight, eight voices. Uh, because you miss sometimes that wall of sound that you get from from so many singers. But doing it with only eight voices, it becomes so exquisitely intimate in a way that I never could have imagined that the voices of Julie and Tony suddenly they're almost like like individual singers there with you. and and I find the Votres a recording in that way it's 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 really intimate music. It's it's I, I I love listening to it on headphones and following the texts and just listening to every tiny detail of the way it sounds, it feels very, very real to me, that, that recording.
0: And the instrumentation is the same. You had a cello and a piano
1: that's in right. the original,
0: and, and and I hear them in this one too.
1: Yeah, that's right, so totally different players, but uh, yeah, a cello and piano. And then because Andrea Haynes, who is Voces 8's lead soprano, and a superhero. <laughs> she just has this pure, glassy voice, like no one I know. I, I wrote her a couple of new things just for the recording, that's so that because I things that I would never do with a traditional choir, but because Andrea is there, then I, I gave her these moments, especially in Child of Wonder. You can hear this moment towards the end where she just soars up above everyone. That was written just for her.
0: didn't you didn't force yourself to be locked into this is how I wrote it it's staying this way you you're you're keeping it moving forward and in an organic way um, in, in accordance with who you're um, who you're
1: collaborating with that's yeah and it's always like that for me by the way that uh, even pieces that have been published if I'm working them with a group and it's not quite working almost always I think that's my fault as a composer and so then I I'll just retool right on the stand, depending on the group. Let's do this, try this, change this. To me, I, I never thought of music as a thing that is finished and this is the way we do it. For me, it's always this, it's a living organism. And so so it has to work. It has to work for the audience. It has to work for the performers. And so I. I it's very much like clay for me every new time I put it together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: That just leaves quickly, It's the disc starts off with, three of the works that I mentioned at the top of the interview are, are some of those pieces that by now there are multiple performances of, and Voce's Eight is even, this is not their first time recording at least one of these here, um, but it gives you an opportunity, again, in, standing in front of them, to hear your music coming at you in a in a new way.
1: Yeah, yeah, which is, it's, um, I, I can't describe how humbled and grateful I am for the whole experience, the even just the process of recording felt like a healing experience for me, just the sound of their voices. Sometimes I just had to laugh and think, I, I have the best seat on earth right here, you know? Like just standing that close to them and, and hearing that sound and hearing it wash over me. Um, so the, just the recording of the CD in general, it was just a transformative experience for me.
0: Eric, what is what would be um, an area in music that you haven't yet tried that you'd love to try
2: mm.
0: uh, a
1: genre or or something like that? I'm interested in film music. I think I would love, but it doesn't necessarily have to be with film. I just love film music. There's an, we talked about intimacy before, but there's an intimacy in film music, a kind of humanity in a way. And so I've been thinking lately about writing an album that is, um, that's not an acoustic, performance that then gets captured, you know, like we talked with stereo mics, or even like, but actually is designed for an album, it's designed to be recorded, designed to be listened to in headphones. I, I've lately I've been thinking, maybe I'll do something like that. And of course, one of your
0: earliest pieces, the seal lullaby was meant eventually to be a bit of film music, <laughs> wasn't it? And that didn't it didn't quite get off the ground based on Kipling's exactly tale. Right. Yeah.
1: yeah, I, I took a, a meeting at DreamWorks Animation, this was back in 2005, and they um, they asked, would I like to write uh, for an animated feature? I said, absolutely, something I've always wanted to do. And so they wanted to make The White Seal, this Rudyard Kipling tale, which has the poem in it, this little lullaby. And I thought, oh my God, these are perfect lyrics. And so I recorded it, I sent it over to them, and I didn't hear anything, you know, waiting by the phone. I was just losing my mind after a couple of weeks. And so I finally called them and said, do you not like it? Do you want me to try something else? And they said, no, no, everybody here loved it, but we decided to make Kung Fu Panda instead. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> so I was left with what musical theater writers call a trunk song, right? That you put in a trunk and you hope someday you might have a use for it. And several years later, a choir asked me specifically to write something that was performable by amateur musicians. And I thought, oh, you know what? I think I might have just the thing. Never imagining that the Seal Lullaby would then become one of my more popular pieces. And and it's funny even now listening to it, listening to the recording of it. I think that would make a good movie. Somebody should make that movie. <laughs> I'd love to at least see a short done of it.
0: You know, all Right, right. Just That's just fin- just finished watching all the Oscar shorts, animated shorts, and live action shorts here at a, a local theater. And uh, somebody ought to take that up. I think that'd
1: be great. I love that idea.
0: It's I'm either mad. that, it's either that, or you have to write the the Kung Fu Panda lullaby. <laughs>
1: Well, I'll tell you, so here is here's to come full circle is that I did I worked with the choirs on Kung Fu Panda three. So I actually flew to Shanghai and recorded a Chinese choir there. And so yeah, it's um (laughs) the world is a flat circle. It all worked out in the end. That's wonderful.
0: All right. Well, Eric Whitaker, thank you so much for your time today. Uh talking about home. Um you must feel a little bit like like You've come home with Voces 8 um, yeah. hearing the sound that you've always wanted to hear, and now you do. Uh, and we can't wait to share it with our listeners here at All Classical Portland.
1: Thank you so much, Sean, and, and thanks for having me. It's been great talking to you. you.
2: Amen. Mm-hmm.